This episode of Songwriter Stories is sponsored by Piano Wars. Piano Wars offers unique, high-energy entertainment featuring dueling pianos, sing-along, audience participation, and dance music. Find out more at pianowars.com. Hi, this is Vicki Peterson from The Bangles, and you are listening to Songwriter Stories with Dave Caruso. Defying expectations comes naturally to songwriter and guitarist Vicki Peterson. You've probably heard of her all-female pop vocal group, The Bangles, through their top five hits and heavy MTV video rotation during the 80s. But you might not realize that the vast majority of their recorded output was written and co-written by the band members themselves. Let's listen. Writing the lines as they come to me Scratching them out almost immediately Don't know what it's done to me trying to write something better waiting somewhere for me Vicki Peterson, welcome to Songwriter Stories. Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me. So, truth or myth, your personal <laughs> Wikipedia, your Wikipedia page credits you, Vicki Peterson, as the band's 
founder? Was it really your idea to form the band, the Bangles? Well, the, the Bangles were uh, sort of a continuum from a band that I had with my sister and my best friend in high school. And so in a way for me, it's sort of a, there's a, there's a line, there's a thread that continues the whole way from, you know, my high school world through college, through um, meeting Susanna. But really the Bangles started when Debbie and I met Susanna Hoffs. So um, I'd say the three of us really started the band. Okay. And when you put your first EP out, you were called the Bangs, but the Bangs threatened to beat your butts <laughs> in the schoolyard. Yeah. And so you had to change it. Yeah. Where are they now, eh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know who won that battle. Yeah. It was, a, it was a band from New Jersey, apparently. And we had been informed, um, or at least I was under the, the impression that um, if you put out recorded product under your name and you could, you could claim, that's how you kind of claimed your name because we had gone through a, a succession of names before that. So that's why we went in and recorded a 45 um, getting out of hand. To test the waters? To, to, to put it out there, to get on the radio, hopefully, which God bless Rodney Bingenheimer in Los Angeles, but we did get on the radio with that 45. So we made that recording to, to kind of solidify our name, The Bangs. And then within a year, we were adding letters to the end of it to make it work. <laughs> <laughs> it turned out to be good. You know, The Bangles is a great group name, especially for a girl group. Uh, forgive the moniker, if that's okay. It is a girl group. And we are. A band of girls. <laughs> yeah. I like that it sounds right for you. I, th I like that it's similar to the word jangle, because there's a lot of jangle pop in there. Absolutely. Like, and it has bang in it. You know, Absolutely. That's good too. It still has that syllable. So I was looking at your first EP, 1982, after the Bangs uh, single. Mm -hmm. Four songs are originals and one's a cover, mm -hmm. correct? Correct. So here's my question. Vicki, don't you ladies understand the first thing about how girl groups work? Apparently not. Where are the Svengali? <laughs> where are the Svengali? Where are the male studio musicians and where are the divas? Yeah, we, 
We kind of we kind of blew that up, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. We didn't do it right. We didn't do it right. Um, yeah, that was something that I was. Um, I had a sort of personal aversion to the idea that a man comes in and uh, you know grabs women and puts instruments in their hands and says, "You're going to be a star." Um, and and we avoided management and any kind of direction for probably too long, but ultimately it was the right decision. It was really cool because you had control, you rocked out, and you had your femininity. It was all good. Yeah, we definitely rocked. I mean, we just were, we were being who we were. I mean, there's a lot of uh, women out there, um, incredible players, incredible bands who, you know, felt a different way about it and wanted to rock just like the guys. And, and that's great too. I mean, there, there's, I mean, I don't know, you look at a band like L7 and they're just amazing, you know, and, mm-hmm. and so good. Um, but they were just being who they were, and we are we were who we were. Well, for instance, Joan Jett was doing a different thing than the Bengals. She's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. But I appreciated what you were doing because it wasn't that. Yeah. You know what I mean? I want both. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, you sing lead on Want You, mm-hmm. and you wrote that one yourself. In fact, here's your first EP, and you've got a solo writing credit right out of the gate. It was just an extension of what we were doing live, and we were doing a lot of our own originals. Yep. And you continued that thread, and we're going to talk more about it. I'd like to talk about the Cowsills connections, because there's a ton of them. <laughs> yes, there are. Can I do that? Absolutely. Okay. With pleasure. I knew you, you had a remarkable number of connections to the Cowsills, but before preparing this interview, I didn't realize that some of them existed this early in your career, which <laughs> I'll tie back to. <laughs> yes. I'll come back to this EP again at the end of this list. Yes. So you and the Castles were both in bands with family members mm-hmm. that lasted upwards of 40 years or more. So that's a huge thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. In 1987, the Bengals recorded the less celebrated Simon and Garfunkel cover called A Hazy Shade of Winter. And the Castles had already done that with a lesser known song called A Most Peculiar Man. Absolutely. In 1991... You and Susan Kausel began performing live with the band Continental Drifters, and later you'd both be full-time members. Before we were um, full members or even auxiliary members of the Continental Drifters, Susan and I recorded and wrote and performed as the Psycho Sisters. As early as 1991, we started working together and just kind of as a lark, really. But we started singing together and, and we both had this realization that even though she and I were not blood relatives, our voices have a kind of genetic blend in the way that my voice blends with Debbie's and the way that her voice blends with her brother's, which is that sort of magical, weird, biological thing that happens um, when, when two people who are related sing together. But for whatever reason, she and I have that as well. And it's just kind of magical. It's one of my favorite things. <laughs> I agree. And one of the things I really love about singers, just people that sing lead, is when they sing background vocals, it's a different thing because they're matching the other person. Oh, you yeah. have a different quality and she has a different quality as backing singers than you do as lead singers. And they're both awesome. It's a very different skill set. And it's something... Uh, I had to realize as a singer, because I was so experienced as a harmony singer and a background singer, because when I, even as a kid listening to the radio, I could sing every background harmony to every Beatles song, every top 40 song. I knew the harmonies to them. Um, And then suddenly it was like, but now you have to learn how to put forth a lead vocal. And that's, that was a whole different thing for me to learn, really. I remember getting 
yelled at by somebody when I was in a band and who said, you don't know how to sing backing vocals. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm hitting the right notes. I'm singing the right words. What do you mean? It's a and thing. It's all about the tone. Yeah. yeah. It's all about the, the matching the tone. Matching. And it's a, uh, it's a real skill. And boy, the master, the cow seals are masters at that. Just mm -hmm. masters. <laughs> in 2003, you married into the family. I did. Well, you married John Cowsill. Absolutely. Yes, I did. So now Susan is your sister-in-law. She is. She is my psycho sister-in-law. In 2003, Susan co-wrote a song with you that landed on the fourth full-length Bangles album. Yes. We had actually written that song together. Um, well, to be perfectly honest, that song is a 99% Susan Cowsill composition. I stepped in and helped her with some arrangement and, and some ideas on the bridge. But she had, had written that song years earlier, if you're speaking of the rain song. I am. Or When It Rains, as it's also titled, which was also recorded by the Continental Drifters, previous to the Bangles recording it, and also recorded by Hootie and the Blowfish. In 2017, because we still haven't finished the Cowsells list, we could be here all night. <laughs> you recorded an album as a member of Action Skulls, which included John Cowsell and a TV kid star, Billy Moomy. That's correct. Bill Murray. How cool is that? From Lost in Space. From Lost in Space, who was, you know, one of my first TV crushes for sure, um, which is hilarious. The, the, Bill and John got together and they were the ones who really started uh, the whole idea of, of doing a band and working together. And John just kind of said to Bill, I want to play drums on, you, on any of your stuff because Bill is, is just a, an incredibly prolific songwriter and uh and musician and recording artist and he you know i mean we joke when when i told him that it took the psycho sister 20 years to to make a record he just uh, his head almost exploded he was just <laughs> he was like the very idea was just a complete antithesis to how he works so um but yeah so they were they were like two 12 year old boys getting together and just completely geeking out over uh you know each other and making music together and mm -hmm. and coming up with a band name like the action skulls god help me um <laughs> well it's funny when you see you know when you click google and you click vicky peterson and you see the wikipedia entry um, underneath it is the description like a tiny bit of the description very first words are action skull yeah it's, it's <laughs> so like, funny what, what? like what what and then if you hear the music, I mean, definitely, I, mean, I encourage anyone to, to, to listen because it's, it's a wonderful sound. It has nothing to do with anything that you might associate with something called the action skulls, which is mm -hmm. why, of course, I like it because I'm a little perverse in that way. Mm -hmm. Before I circle back to the first EP and that tie-in, did I miss anything else? Uh, Calso-wise? Calso-wise. Uh, yeah, I can actually um, also notate that in the early 90s, I think it was probably 93 or so, I actually played with the Cowsills for a brief time. They were doing um, a, a number of shows in Los Angeles, and I joined them on guitar, which was kind of a childhood dream come true. <laughs> yep. I mean, kind of like having John Lennon come and ask you, you know, hey, you want to jam? <laughs> wow, that must have been amazing. But back in 1982, when this first EP came out, you cover a song written by Steve Duboff and Artie Cornfield. And I should point out that Artie was also the music promoter for the original Woodstock. Absolutely. And those guys were the writers of the first hit 
on the first album by the Calcils, The Rain, The Park, and Other Things. Boom. Also correct. Thank you. Uh, we got there. Woo. I, I'm exhausted. Me too. I need some water. No. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was a I was a big fan when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually kind of missed their their first moment. I missed when they had that hit, The Rain, The Park, and Other Things, written by Uncle Artie. Um, it just for some reason didn't didn't come on my little kid radar. But um, their second hit, We Can Fly, did, and I remember my older sister who was always sort of the arbiter of taste when it came to pop music because she had the bigger allowance and she had all the records um and plus she got to control the radio and the car um she kind of she was a little disdainful she was like oh it's that group with a kid your age in it and i just went wait what and um, (laughs) and, uh, i was like wait a second and then i then i went in and did the kind of only kind of research you can do when there was no internet and and um, started going to record stores and and i I I just flipped out that there was a band with a kid my age because I already at the age of nine had been writing songs and started playing guitar and and I just couldn't I it was just it it blew my little tiny mind that this was existed in the world and um, so yeah I wanted to pretty much be Susan Cowsell I think you know she was on the Ed Sullivan show come on well their vocal sound their big vocal sound lots and lots of harmonies. That's the Bengals, you know, DNA. Yeah, it's just it's just a joyous sound on the planet. It really is. And um, I always liked vocal groups. I liked the Beach Boys. I I liked the Mamas and Papas. I liked the Birds. I liked bands that sung together in a choral way. And um, and the Cowsills again, they were masters at that, and still are, by the way. <laughs> I agree. I agree. How was the year up there was the name of the song that uh, Duboff and Cornfield did. And it was a cover of the New Zealand band, The Lottie Daz. Mm-hmm. But your own songs were already great. Oh, oh, looking out I really liked Mary Street. That was the one that I remembered the most from that album. Thank you. Yes, that was a really fun one. That's some. That's a song we still enjoy playing live. So 1984 comes around, and the Bangles released their very first full-length album called All Over the Place, produced by David Kahn. Mm-hmm. 11 songs, and only two of them are covers, which, again, you guys are rocking it. Michael Steele took over on bass, uh, he had a, a different bass player for the first EP, and now Michael Steele's in. She's going to do a lot of the albums with you. Yes, she was there for our our tenure at CBS, Columbia, Sony, <laughs> that that lineage. Um, before that, we had Annette Zielinskis playing with us when we were doing clubs in in LA in the earliest of days. And actually, she's been joining us recently in in recent concerts too. So that's awesome. been really a nice circle back. I read that Michael as Mickey Steele was. Uh, founding member of the Runaways, but left before the band was signed. Yes. Yeah, she, uh, she was the first lead singer. Cool. Okay, so you, you start off the album with Hero Takes a Fall, written by Susanna Hoffs and Vicki Peterson. Mm-hmm. What an opener. Exposed one. 
vocals and guitars everywhere. Uh, <laughs> yeah, funny, that funny chord, yeah. Love it. Did you have anything you want to contribute about that song? Yeah, it's um, Here Takes a Fall uh, is another one of the uh, my favorite songs that I wrote with Susanna. And um, it's actually grown a second life as well in recent years because uh, just last year, the Bangles, the Three O'Clock, the Dream Syndicate, and the Rain Parade got together to do a project celebrating the Paisley Underground. And we made a record called Three by Four. What we did on that record was each band chose three songs from the other three bands, or one song from each band, to cover. So the, uh, the beauty of those covers is that the Dream Syndicate covered Hero Takes a Fall. <laughs> on this record, which was a lovely thing for me. I was a housemate with Steve Wynn in uh, the early days in like 1980 through 1983, I think. Um, and, and very good friends. And that song comes from that time. And so it was a beautiful thing to hear the Dream Syndicate completely rock it out on that record. So that's the most recent recording that the Bengals have done. It was a uh, an homage to our earliest days in LA and the, the record's called three by four. Gorgeous. Great. Another great song on that album. And, and for me, it's the song. It's this song that introduced me to the bangles more than the covers, more than the other originals. Um, it hit me like a ton of bricks and it's called Dover beach. Mm -hmm. Another Hoffs Peterson uh, joint. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How many guitars are on that track? <laughs> Do you remember? I know that's got some delay. There's at least at least three, possibly more. Uh, okay, so you overdubbed. We did. We definitely did. I definitely overdubbed some um, some of the lead lines on that one. But it but it's also very integrated. I mean, we play that song live uh, as well when when we feel like there's an audience that's going to be indulgent enough to let us do that. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's a little bit of a anthemic sort of. It's so fun to play live. And it's pretty easy to replicate the record because it's just a basher. There's a couple places where my friend, who's a really great guitarist, said that it sounds like there's two different chords layered on top of each other. There are a couple of things that are happening there, and it kind of creates, there's a little dissonance in some places where, um, where that was happening. And then there's, there's something, and this, is, this was a David Kahn uh, suggestion, which I kind of love, where um, I'm playing a chord and then slide up the, uh, the bass note. So it actually creates a second, and it's a very awkward position 
with a um, a bar cord to do this, but but it it created some movement and some tension, and it was a, it, it was one of David Kahn's really good ideas. Nice. I know that Susanna plays a Rickenbacker sometimes, mm-hmm. which has a smaller neck, which makes it easier to play. Yes. Yes. Are your hands average size? Or are they smaller or larger? And how do you, how is your neck the necks of your guitars? Do you get them special or are they normal? No, they are normal. They are standard. My hands, I don't quite have man hands, but they're not teeny tiny hands. Like Susanna's very little, little fine boned little thing. And so it works better for her. I never had a huge problem with the the reach of a neck. Um, and my first grown up guitar was a Les Paul. And which I still have actually, and I just adore it. Um, so that always felt comfortable to me. And, but I also enjoyed playing a Strat because that neck felt very comfortable to me too. Um, and I have an old Strat. That's another, just one of my faves. Um, it's a 60, 63. A dear friend of mine, um, Tish Cervolo, um started the, the guitar company Daisy Rock 20 years ago. And, um, her entire, her entire intent was to get more guitars in the hands of young girls and get them started on the instrument. And so she intentionally created guitars that were lighter, slightly um, smaller scale, that the necks were slightly thinner um, and, and felt easier to play. Now, I didn't have that when I was a young girl, and I don't know that I necessarily needed it, but there are definitely kids who are attracted to the guitars because they're just really fun and pink and sparkly and, and, um, <laughs> you know, and so, you know, you're an eight. Hey, some boys like pink and sparkly hey, too. Absolutely. And I say, go for it. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> but anyway, so, so there is that, that's out there now that that exists in this century, which is fantastic. <laughs> so when you write with Susanna, I know that all partners are different and mm-hmm. uh, writing partners. But when you write with Susanna, are there conventions and are there things about this song that were conventional about your writing partnership and were there things that were not conventional? Well, on, on the two songs on that first um, CBS record that, that we're discussing, we're talking about Dover Beach and Hero Takes a Fall. Um, interestingly enough, both of those songs were sort of inspired by literature. They were kind of inspired by a, a, a trip through the Norton Anthology of English literature, um, which, which I had, she, Susanna went to UC Berkeley. I went to UCLA. We were both interested in, in English literature. And, uh, so of course, um, with Dover Beach, you have the Matthew Arnold poem that it, it references. There's a little T.S. Eliot in there. Um, <laughs> you know, we're, we're definitely ripping from everyone we could. Um, and then here it takes a fall was more, um, based on the ancient, uh, dramatical uh, construct of of a, a hero having a fatal flaw and you know something the achilles heel something in in the hero in the story that will take him down um that creates conflict and and so we kind of were playing around with that concept on that song i like when my guests bring up things like the norton reader it's just <laughs> awesome <laughs> all right so you and Susanna had other writing partners all through this time too. What was different when you wrote together? Well, it was actually always my favorite thing to do. I had this sense that, and this was this was a struggle for me. It's something I had to really learn about and, and move through. But um, I had the feeling that a band should have 
a collective voice, that a band should be, you know, like REM or like, you know, like the Beatles, but where the band members themselves are creating the music and, and writing the music that the band is singing. Now, this was just my personal vision. Um, this is not how it works for everybody, obviously, and um, especially these days when most songs have, you know, 14 writers on them. So I really preferred writing within the group. And I preferred to write with Susanna. Before that, I had, uh, I, I wrote with uh, my bandmate, Amanda Hills, now Professor Dr. Amanda Podani. <laughs> she, she became a historian, so she went off to have a, another life. So, but I always liked having a partner. And so after Amanda went off to have a real career, um, <laughs> I, I started writing with Susanna. And that was a, um, it was just a preferred, preferred position for me. So we're back on Dover Beach. Did one of you do mostly lyrics and one of you do mostly music? My memory for writing Dover Beach, and I remember, we, I remember where we were, um, was that we were pretty much both contributing. Definitely both of us contributed lyrics and the music too. It was sort of an organic composition, um, which doesn't always work that way. I think I, I was the one who came up with the, you know, the way that the song starts with that sort of open root um, mm-hmm. chord and um, but the whole song has a almost a, a classical construction and that's probably not yes. really true but but it feels that way where there's movements in it instead of being specifically verse one verse two chorus one bridge chorus verse three chorus out it doesn't do that <laughs> it's exactly what attracts me to it <laughs> You've got a first verse. You know, if we had the time, I'd run away with you to a perfect world. We'd suspend all that is due to you or required. And then a little transition section of four measures. Mm-hmm. Now that transition section is going to change. It's not always going to be the same length and it's not always going to be the same chords. Right. But we're going to use it again. Then we do a second verse, just like the first verse in length, but the words don't line up. They're not the same syllables. They're not the same rhythms. And it doesn't matter. They don't rhyme the same way. I know. And somehow it works. And this is what I love about it because people spend hours and hours trying to get good rhymes or make rhymes not seem so, you know, in your face or just be clever enough to say, somebody say, that was a good one. And here we don't rhyme at all. And it's got this romantic literature sound to it and talk of Michelangelo. And so I love that. You do the transition later and you start adding more measures then you do a solo which is on the verse but it ends differently than the verse right it's the kind of thing that drives people crazy when you're trying to teach them a song they're like why why do you do it like and and what happened with that song and it really we didn't repeat this process too many times in in over our entire career really um because it just flowed that way and it was i guess it was because it was based on a poem and it 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 flowed in that direction instead of it being very structured and, you know, fit the puzzle pieces together, which is a lot of times when I'm writing a song, I mean, I'm working on a song now and it feels like you're trying to piece together a puzzle, um, which is actually part of the joy and craft and frustration and, (laughs) um, uh, and beauty of, of songwriting. Obviously, you know, one of our greatest, songwriters is is Bob Dylan and he doesn't always march along uh, rhythmically to the same you know think his words don't always parse out in a in a meter but the rhymes are often just genius 
And, um, you know, and you can say the same for rap songs. I mean, I love it. The rap world doesn't care about what Sammy Khan is a songwriter, famous famous songwriter called the true rhyme. You know, he doesn't care about, they don't really care about true rhymes, but they're still really fun and inventive. Mm -hmm. So rhyming was always really important to me. For whatever reason on Dover beach, you could end a line like, you know, with the words duty or required, and there's nothing else around it that rhymes or it just sung well. It just felt good in the mouth. It, It just worked. And it was a woman's song. That was a woman's perspective that wrote that song. You know, it just, I love yes. that. Yes, yeah. There's so many good songs on, the, on this album. We could do one show just on this album alone. <laughs> In fact, a lot of your albums are like that. But I want to skip to More Than Meets the Eye. Okay. Which is a solo composition. Yes. He's got a slow, slow ride. Got a camera inside. He takes a picture Hangs it up to dry And there's one girl named And another disclaimed All the time you can't help feeling ashamed Given you reasons to survive Tell us what that song's about. This is almost like a, a writing exercise I did, just kind of like to see what would happen. And again, I'm going to reference Bob Dylan because I was actually listening to a Bob Dylan record. I think it was Blonde and Blonde. And I thought it would be interesting while listening to another song to write a set of lyrics that had nothing to do with what I was listening to, but almost like free associate. So More Than Meets the Eye is a free association song. So I'd never done that before, and, um, and, I, and I haven't done it since. But that's what happened with that song. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great song. I, I'm not sure I completely understand it. I think it's sort of haunting and interesting and wild. And would you think it's weird of me that I think Following by Michael Steele almost sounds like a sequel? Mm-hmm. I would understand that, and, and possibly it's in mood. Mm-hmm. And also how we framed it musically and instrumentally. I mean, we wanted I wanted it more than meets the eye to be kept very sparse. I fought tooth and nail for that string sextet in that arrangement because David Kahn really wanted to, he didn't want to, you know, it was a budget thing. He was a producer. He cared about the money. And, um, and he just wanted to do a synthesizer part, a string part. And I was adamantly against it. And, really fought for it. So, and I'm so glad we did because I think it's, it's quite beautiful. It's great. Jimmy Haskell did the string arrangement and he did uh, the string arrangements for uh, Bridge Over Troubled Waters and, and several Simon and Garfunkel records. That for me was like, yeah, getting to work with more of your heroes. <laughs> your harmonies are, are built a certain way to get that bangle sound. Did someone usually get the high note? I would think it'd be Susanna and then maybe Michael be the lowest or how did, how did you decide? You know, it's funny. It didn't work out that way. Um, okay. Not as, not as 
you would think or that one would think. Uh, oddly, Debbie and I often ended up with the lower parts. In the earliest Bangle days, when we were putting together harmonies, it's surprising that sometimes Susanna would be the part below mine. And we had to re-remember that when we were recently uh, relearning some of our songs from the EP and that era to to play them live. I'm like, I'm listening, I'm listening. I'm like, did I sing that or is that Sue? I can't even tell, you know. And, uh, you know, it's sometimes hard to hear, to tell the, the difference between Debbie and my voices. Everyone has a yes. hard time with that. But, um, but, but sometimes I couldn't tell my voice from Susanna's because she was singing the lower part and that was unusual. So in later days, yes, she would, she would tend to take a higher part. But sometimes Michael Steele, who has a beautiful um, lower register alto voice, also has a pure, gorgeous crystal soprano. That's very surprising. Yes. So she would sometimes take the you know, octave up. So we were all over the place, literally. <laughs> On your 1986 album, Different Light, you had eight originals out of 12 songs and four covers. When it comes to Manic Monday by Prince, Mm -hmm. Walk Like an Egyptian by Liam Sternberg, Mm -hmm. If She Knew What She Wants by Jules Shear, and September Girls by Big Star's Alex Chilton, how were those cover songs chosen and who spearheaded what? It's not a bad combination of songs, is it? (laughs) It is not. And it's not a bad combination of people to have in your corner. Exactly. The song, the songwriters are all influential and fantastic. Well, Manic Monday was brought to us by Prince on a cassette. And um, he wrote all the time and he wrote for other artists all the time. It's something that he cared a lot about, um, which I don't think I really knew at the time, but um, he just would demo a song at you know, three in the morning and, and that cassette would be out in someone's hands by noon. He sent us two songs, but Manic Monday was the one that to me felt like uh, completely relatable. It almost felt like something, and I, I say this with, it's, it sounds like ridiculous hubris, but, but it felt like some, something Suzanne and I could have written, you know, um, because sure. it just, it had that kind of, I don't know, sparkle to it. And um, It doesn't sound like it's in some foreign mouth. It sounds like it's coming from the, from the mouth of the author when you guys sing it. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there are definitely moments where where I think Susanna would would get a little bashful about singing that bridge that was sort of, um, <laughs> you know, a little <laughs> insinuating of of the night before. But yeah. um, but we that's why we kind of did that playful operatic, you know, response mm-hmm. um, right. to to kind of tone it down a little bit, <laughs> or just or to, to just play off it a little bit. But yeah, so the, the, the Prince song, I mean, that was a no-brainer, of course, to, to do that. And what an incredible tribute that he left us. I mean, he just, he really liked the band. He saw 
our Hero Takes a Fall video and just, you know, he was always paying attention to what was going on in music. And, um, and he just, he dug the band and he said, this is, you know, I want to, I want to be in here. So God bless him for that. And he used to show up at shows, get on stage with us. Um, we never knew when he was coming. It would just, you know, we would just have our, our road manager would be gesturing at me wildly from the side of the stage during an encore and say, Prince is here. He wants to play. I'm like, do okay. (laughs) Here's my guitar. (laughs) So, so that was great. And then, um, if she knew what she wants also, you know, was, was brought to us, um, you know, via Jules and, and, uh, I think David Kahn actually found, found that one. I think he was looking for material to kind of round out the, the sound of the record. Um, and I think those songs definitely did that. Um, it's another beautiful song. And, and, it, and the thing that we liked about that song, it was sort of a call and response. So it was a way to approach the vocals in a, in a Banglish kind of a way. Well, one of the main differences between the Bangles version and the Jewel Shear version of If She Knew What She Wants is that in the Jewel Shear version, both the lead singer and the backing singer are singing in the first person. also rearranged the song a little bit so that in uh, later years I would um, run into Jules at, at various shows and, and um, sing the song with him but I would have to remember to do it Jules's way <laughs> not the bang, not the Bengals arrangement the big star song uh, September Girls that was uh, that was Michael Steele's contribution she brought that one in she said let's do this it was funny it was a time in our group of friends in our circle where uh, Big Star was just becoming known. And obviously they had already, they'd already come and gone at that point, because mm-hmm. I'm talking about like 1982. People were discovering we were, we were really just discovering them at that point. And um, instead of it being, you know, 1974 uh, and, and just completely in love with that band. And mm-hmm. so the idea of covering one of their songs was, was brilliant. I'm, I'm giving Michael Steele credit for that. I'm pretty sure it was her idea and she does a beautiful job on it. Unfortunately, um, when we first met Alex, uh, I don't know how thrilled he was about it. He wasn't in a great place either. When we first met him, I met him later in new Orleans and actually the psycho sisters opened for him a couple of times and he played with the continental drifters and we became friends and, and, you know, he was somebody I, I knew on a whole different level in new Orleans and he was just a lovely human, but he was also, uh, mercurial. And so you never knew exactly mm-hmm. what mood you were going to get. And, right. uh, yeah. And, and I don't think he was totally cared that much about the Bengals rec- recording September girls. And then when we first did it, I think later on, I think he, he came around, but, um, well, it's like Elvis Costello said about Linda Ronstadt recording her songs. I didn't like it at all at first, but later I saw what it did to my bank account, and I liked it a lot. 
I think Alex may have been coming from a point of view some similar, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so have you had a chance to see the Linda Ronstadt documentary yet? I Sound did. of My Voice? I sure did. One of the things that all of her peers say, and all the fans seem to agree on, is that she took songs that were covers and she made them better. And mm -hmm. although proportionately, proportionally, you didn't do that many covers, really. You're known for your covers, but there's only a few of them. I just think you guys did the same thing she did. You totally one-upped them. Oh, well, thank you. I, it's funny, when you do a cover song, it's like, uh, and it's something the Bengals always did. I mean, people, you, you know, started saying, well, you guys just do covers and you don't, you know, many of our hits were written by other artists or outside songwriters. But, um, but doing a cover is so much fun. And it's, it's a way of taking something you love and getting inside it, you know, and, mm -hmm. and uh, inhabiting that world for those three minutes um and you know there's sort of this universal law like never record a Beatles song because why <laughs> you know and um but but that's of course ridiculous and of course you should if you want to sing that song sing the damn song and when it came to Linda Ronstadt she had an impeccable ear for songs and songwriters and mm -hmm. um I mean, obviously, it's it's. Uh, it always surprised me why she didn't write more because she had such a phenomenal instrument. Obviously, incredible ear, and was a very smart lady, and is a very mm -hmm. smart lady. I thought she always articulated her ideas really beautifully um, in interviews, and and uh, you, you can see that in the documentary for sure. She was very important to me as a uh, as a young singer or try. I just you know I was like probably one of thousands of girls in their bedrooms trying to sing like Linda Ronstadt, you know, really, that was just like, I wish I had those pipes and I, I don't, mm -hmm. <laughs> but, you know, but that's just, she is, she's definitely one of our, our treasures for sure. Nineteen eighty-eight, the album "Everything" comes out. Mm -hmm. It's kind of your headquarters album because all of these songs you all wrote on them. They're either co-writes or they're just completely bangle songs. Mm -hmm. You're strutting your stuff, you know, and saying we don't need to do that to have a great album, and it is a great album. Yeah, it's it's um, to me, it's more in certain ways the uh, get back <laughs> because because it's the record that that uh, was the harbinger of, of our dissolution for one thing. Um, it was also the record that, uh, we didn't, we didn't participate as a group as much. We did this, th this record was done more, uh, soloistically. Like if, you know, mm -hmm. if we were working on a Michael song, you know, Michael would be kind of, you know, in, in the studio for the duration and she'd be kind of giving her, input and we would let her let that happen and the same thing with you know a song that Susanna wrote or that I wrote and we were also we were working with David Sigerson who was just fantastic and a, and a wonderful um, presence in the studio. We can talk about the hits all day long but so does everybody else. I want to go to some things that maybe other people don't talk about. Great. I love that in the glitter years Michael Steele does a little Bowie impression when she mm -hmm. says you better <laughs> That's so good. And it's like when I hear it, I'm I'm like, I don't hear someone imitating Bowie. I hear Bowie. It's great. 
just want to say that. <laughs> she was really good at that. And again, you know, she's doing the, the low octave and the high octave. You know, she's, mm-hmm. <laughs> she's, she's a very versatile singer. You know, your song Crash and Burn is a song that I never get tired of. We analyze it in my songwriting classes, and the songwriters are always super impressed with it. <laughs> when I play the recording, I show them how the song is like a speeding car, which is the whole point. Right. The car takes off, and from that moment on, you've got sort of a chase scene, you've got someone running from responsibilities or running from the things they don't, that, that bother them, and they're heading toward a crash, really. Mm-hmm. You didn't do an explosion at the end, but you've <laughs> even got the background vocals going, ooh, ooh, which would be a European siren, Exactly, exactly. It only has a verse and a bridge. The verse and the bridge both have the title in it. And when you go from section to section, as the song goes on, you start cutting pieces away so that you get the thing sooner. Shorter, shorter. Yeah. Yeah. So was that arrangement the band's idea or the producers? The arrangement, I believe, it was pretty much of a com- combination. That song was written, um, it was begun uh, by Rachel Sweet when she was on a flight coming to Los Angeles. And then she, she and I were getting together and we were writing some songs. We wrote several songs together. Um, and she had the first three lines of that song. And I was like, okay, this is, we're definitely going. <laughs> this, is, this is doing something. It's moving. It's great. And so she and I finished that song together. I think this, the structure of it actually came in the writing process. It's a treat. Well, thank you. If I print out the lyrics, I number the lines, and I show everybody what things you're doing, the little tricks that happen, and they're, <laughs> they're, they're fascinating because it, it's such a simplistic song mm-hmm. to your ear. You, you just hear one, four, fives, and once in a while, another chord, but... You're thinking, ah, it's not much to it. The lyrics are simplistic. But then you look closer and you see Reno, scene dash O, and Mino. Mean O. Mean (laughs) O-H, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. you're getting your rhymes by very creatively there. She is. And then later you do the same thing with Philco, which is wonderful because here you are a band that would be totally um, appreciative of a 60s vibe (laughs) and the the things that, you know, Philco would have been made radio back in those times. Uh, it's very much a Bengal song. So I really love how Rachel Sweet and you got together and made something that that you were all embraced and made into this cool thing. That worked great for the for the band. Yeah. And again, I'm gonna reference Sammy Khan because um he wrote a book in I don't even know when, but I somehow found it when I was in high school and I was just kind of really trying to figure out how to write songs. And it's a rhyming dictionary, and it I still have my copy of it. It's falling apart. It's, um, and he was that kind of a writer. He would do something like rhyme Reno and scene O. So that's a very old fashioned kind of a rhyming thing. That's something you would find in a, you know, if you're lucky in a Sondheim song or something, you know, there's something very forties, fifties about it that attracted me. In most writing partnerships, the writer who brings the most to the song is the one who sings it on the recording. Mm-hmm. Did you guys ever have any situations where someone, like you say, here's a piece of a song we're going to bring, I'm going to bring to Susanna, and then she ends up singing it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. One of the songs um, on the first Columbia record, James, 
was a song that I wrote years earlier. I wrote it probably four or five years before that and um, performed it in the band that I was with my friend Amanda and Debbie. Um, we used to sing that song, perform that song, and I sang it. So I sang that song for years, I felt like. So when we were going into rehearsals for that first record, um, I just felt like I was kind of burnt out on it. And I realized that Susanna would be a better vocal for it. So um, it was my suggestion. I think David Kahn was thrilled that I suggested it because <laughs> he was happy to have Susanna sing pretty much <laughs> anything. So, um, but that was, that was one example of a song that... Um, that I wrote that I did not sing lead on. And there's a couple other ones too. Yeah. In 1989, the Bengals took about 10 years off. Was it a breakup or a hiatus? It was being formed as a hiatus. Um, it felt like a breakup. You certainly didn't hear that from me at that time. I was not ready for that break, but yes, it's absolutely life definitely agreed that we needed that break. And, uh, I went on to have a very different life for the next, you know, 10 years or so. So I was quite pleased to have that break ultimately, even though it wasn't my idea. <laughs> this is the story of my life. Somebody's little girl to someone else's wife. What happened in between is the dying of a dream. And that's the story of my life. Nineteen nineties, you were doing all kinds of projects because now you're free to be whoever you want to be and do whatever you need. So tell us a little bit about how that, how the nineties played out. Well, um, it it so happened that I connected with some old friends, Mark Walton, Peter Holzapple, who were playing in a band uh, called the Continental Drifters, and so Susan who, as I mentioned earlier, she and I were already writing together and performing as the Psycho Sisters, rarely, but always had a good time. Um, and so we started kind of hanging out with the Continental Drifters. And before you know it, we were on stage with them. They were playing um, our song, the Rain Song, and we were singing background vocals with them. So we fell in love. It was just a mutual love affair. Um, Different style of music. All kinds of levels. Yes, it's completely different than the Bangles. But for me, it felt so comfortable because I didn't really realize that what was to be uh, labeled in just a few years Americana, um, that that was my comfort zone, really. That's where I felt the most, you know, as much as I love singing and love playing with a rock band and I love, you know rocking out and loud guitar and all that but but the the sort of folksy americana rootsy uh style and and genre of music felt very comfortable to me at that at that time it was like a lifesaver it really was even the look was different <laughs> you had the glamorous look for the bangles and this was more like the council's look yeah oh my gosh the continental drifters i just yeah we were not doing mini skirts and fishnets. I was doing peasant dresses and and uh, in overalls. If it was complete and antithesis, and and again, just exactly what I needed. I needed the opposite for just a little while. So the Drifters, I just um, is a project I will always be in love with. There were like how many albums? Three, three full albums and um, a couple of singles, and several different personnel changes. And every single person who was in that band is someone I completely admire. 
we uh, released uh, just a few years ago sort of the earliest recordings of the Continental Drifters. And that that's where you're going to see uh, the Susan and Vicky uh, stepping in as, as, you know, background singers rather than full band members. But um, we had a blast. We toured Europe all the time. It was a really wonderful musical experience. You became a trader in 1994-95, and you joined a rival group that's not really a rival group, <laughs> the Go-Go's. Yeah, I'll scratch their eyes out. <laughs> For their reunion tour. <laughs> Charlotte Caffey was pregnant, huh? She was pregnant with my ex-boyfriend's baby. Um, oh, yeah? Yeah. I love saying that. She actually, who was actually her husband and still is her husband. <laughs> but, that's how, but that's how much uh, crisscrossing there was. No, the, the uh, alleged cat fight between the Go-Go's and the Bengals was completely manufactured and unreal. And, uh, sure. you know, I, I sang on several of Belinda's uh, solo records. I played with Belinda. Charlotte was a dear friend. Touring with the Go-Go's, it was... Uh, a completely different experience for me. I had so much fun and I, I was honored that Charlotte had asked me to step in because she couldn't tour at that time. And, uh, and it was, it was just, it was good for me on all kinds of levels. You know, it was fun to be the side guy and not, you know, and that was a completely different role for me to play. Yeah. You don't have as much concentration on details. You just, you do your thing. You do your job. Hit your mark. You get on stage and you do your job. Yeah. You don't have to worry about ticket sales. You don't worry about anything. You just have a good time. So um, it was... Now, be honest. Whose songs were more complicated to play, the Bangles or the Go-Go's, um, truthfully? They were completely different. I, the thing, I was emulating Charlotte's guitar style, and she did uh -huh. a lot of uh, bar chords with, uh, you know, 16th note downstrokes and and the the sort of more you know, a little more punk rock kind of approach to guitar. Um, but I also had to, because we didn't have a keyboard player on that tour and Charlotte uh, doubles on keyboards for the Go-Go's. So I was also trying to emulate some of her piano lines on guitar. And that was, mm. I don't know how successful I was, but it was good. It was a good reach for me. I had to, you know, had to actually think. So that was fun. Two thousand three, Doll Revolution was a great title for an album for a, a girl band, and "Tear Off Your Own Head." It's a Doll Revolution by Elvis Costello. That song came uh, via Susanna and Michael because they had been approached. I'm not sure exactly how it happened um, to sing on a demo of that song. That uh, Elvis had written that song. He was pitching. A, a TV project of some kind and was using that as the theme, but he wanted to hear female vocals do, do it. So he had Suzanne and Michael go to the studio and record it. And they came back and they said, you guys have to hear this song. This is in, insane. <laughs> so I was like, we are, we are covering that song. <laughs> it and, fits uh, you so well. It, it does. It's so fun. It's such a great song. And you know, Elvis Costello, again, we just feel so, I feel so lucky to say this, but he was always very supportive of the Bengals. Every time he comes into town, you know, he often asks us to come and, you know, sing with them, dance in the go-go booth, which is my favorite thing. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, and he always, to, to connect two of these master songwriters, he always wants to do a version of If She Knew What She Wants. And he always asks us to sing that with him. So isn't that interesting? So oh. 
he's such a great singer, uh, such a powerful singer. You don't realize mm-hmm. that until you're in the room with him. And yeah, he always liked that song. So it's like, that's just something that is a wonderful connection. In 2011, your fifth studio album, Sweetheart of the Sun? We, we tracked most of those songs, the beginnings of those songs, the, the basic tracks. We did that with Matthew at his home studio. It's just, you know, very, very freeing uh, experience. And then finished all the songs, all the overdubs and everything were done at um, my home studio and Susanna's home studio. So that's where we did most of the vocals and, and uh, Matthew's, he's just, he's just a wonder. He's another extremely talented guy. And uh, he was also one of the first, you, you mentioned uh, the John Doe backing vocals. He was um, one of the first backing vocal session I ever did. And that was with, and, and Debbie did it with me. And this was when David Kahn was first working with us. And he was working with Matthew Sweet in Matthew's, uh, early, early days at Columbia Records and his first record. And we sang backgrounds on one of Matthew's songs on that record, a song called Blue Pools. And I haven't heard it in probably 30 years, but I just remember it. And, and that's where we met Matthew. And it was like, this guy's adorable. <laughs> when we were setting up the interview, you mentioned an annual college gig that has to do with songwriting. Can you tell us about yes, that? Yes. Um, for the last five years or so, a local uh, California State University here out in Pomona, California, uh, invites a group of people to come and work with the students. Um, they do a, a showcase every spring, and uh, the, the students write their own material, write a song, and then perform it. So they either perform it solo or in a group. And I've been doing this for a few years now. I've done a master classes with the songwriting classes. I've done... Um, one-on-one mentoring with the songwriters. And then in the last three years, we've been working with the actual combos, the, the uh, instructors put together combos of students and they learn uh, each other's material they, and they put together and they perform three or four songs. So I'm going to be doing that this week again. I'm very excited. It's something, um, it's, I always come away feeling completely inspired by these students who are um, just just beginning their careers or or starting what they want to, to do hopefully as a as a career but um just learning the craft and and they're so excited and they just love it so much and it's it's um a, a wonderful experience and i'm, I'm going to be doing that again this year fantastic they're lucky kids you have a lot to offer them anything coming up that you want to plug yes john and bill and i are putting the finishing touches on another action skulls record John tours with the Beach Boys, and so he's gone 90% of the year. I am glacially slow <laughs> at getting stuff done, so it drives <laughs> Bill Mooney crazy, but we will get it done. I'm this afternoon demoing the last song I'm going to send to the guys and see if they, they like it. We have most of a, of a full-length uh, record ready to go, so that will be coming out at some point this year. I hope. I just said it out loud, so now it has to. <laughs> Fantastic. Well. Vicki Peterson, it has been an absolute delight talking with you about music and songwriting. Well, I really appreciate you having me. Thank you. You've been listening to Songwriter Stories, Episode 17 with Vicki Peterson. 
There's more to this podcast than just the interview. For bonus content, visit songwriterstories.com and click on the Writer's Room link for this episode. If you like the show, consider giving us a review at Apple Podcasts. Your positive review will help other listeners find our show. That's all for now. I'm Dave Caruso, and I'll see you next time.